Well, we are starting a brand new series this morning, and I want to ask you a question. Do you, do you know what this word means right here? Hot mess. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to a hot mess, you may not know the historical context of this word. Uh, back in the 19th century, it was a military term, and guess what it referred to? It referred to a mess hall. Right? I mean, the, the mess hall of the, the military, that's what they called it, a hot mess. And then in the 20th century, it still was used as a military term. But what it meant is when they were in the middle of a firefight, when they were in the middle of a situation that was very dangerous, they'd say, oh, man, we're in the middle of a hot mess here. But in the 21st century, today, what it means whenever we talk about what a hot mess is, is it means this, an attractive disaster. Right? I mean, this is the goal in life. I mean, today, when we talk about being a hot mess, what we mean is we mean this. We mean that it's someone whose life is in disarray, but they remain somewhat attractive and functional. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to turn to the person next to you and say, boy, you're a hot mess. Go ahead. Boy, you are a hot mess. Some of you are going, amen. Yes, I am. All right. Because I mean, this is the goal in life. Because we all know that, that we're messy people. We all know that we're a hot mess. We all know that this is just, no, this took a lot of work. Because the truth is, is that I, I, am, I am a mess. I am a hot mess. But you would never know because of how attractive and functional I still am. And so when it comes to being a hot mess, some of you, you, you know you are a hot mess currently. You are currently a hot mess. I mean, when we talk about messes, we're talking about financial messes. We're talking about your budget. We're talking about your spending. We're talking about your credit. Some of you are hot messes. Some of you in your relationships. Some of you are dating a hot mess right now. Some of you married a hot mess. Don't nudge anybody next to you, okay? But some of you are involved in a hot mess of a relationship. Some of us, we're, our health is in a hot mess. I mean, some of it we brought on ourselves by decisions that we made. Some of us, it's not any, anything based on a decision we made. It's inherited. It was brought on us, and we're in, a, we're in a hot mess. And the thing is, is that some of you, you know a hot mess even too, right? I mean, some of us, we know a hot mess or two. Some of us were parented by hot messes, okay? Again, don't nudge anybody or anything. Some of you, your children are hot messes. Don't nudge anyone again okay maybe a neighbor maybe a friend but the thing is is that all of us at one time or another have been a hot mess and sometimes it's it's not even as messy as we think sometimes it's just it's even a transitional mess i mean some of you you're you're brand new parents you're brand new to parenting you got that that new little baby or you got that that new second baby or that new third baby and man it's just it's a hot mess right now i mean they are they're doing all new things they, every time you think that you know the name of the game they change the rules i mean it's just a hot mess all of the time some of you you're in that stage of being from you know 19 to your early 20s and you're in that transitional mess you know you've graduated from high school and now you're like i don't know what to do i don't know what my degree should be. And so you're in the middle of a hot mess. Some of you, you're in between messes. Some of you, it's been about six months, but, but you know, between this mess and the last mess, and maybe it's a peaceful time. But here's the thing we all need to take account of. Okay. You and I, each of us, we're one dumb decision away from being in a new mess. Because a lot of times when it comes to the messes of the world and the messy people that are around us, a lot of us sometimes start pointing our fingers and looking at other people and going, wow, they are really in the mess, you know, and you talk about them a little bit behind their back. But the thing is, you got to understand, you are one dumb decision away from a dumb mess. 
Because you all know this, right? Life, life is messy. Life is messy. Either we're in a mess or we're between messes, but we all know that life is messy. But here is the good news, okay? For the good news for you today, the gospel truth, it's this. There's always someone that's in a bigger mess than you. So take heart. Take care, all right? I say we call it a day and go hit up Applebee's. What do you guys say? I mean, that's a pretty good short message right there, all right? Yes, that's right. Someone's life is always a bigger mess than mine. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. No, that's not very nice. That's not good news. But here's a nicer way of saying it. Nicer way of saying it, it's not just you. It's not just you. There are people all around us who are in messes themselves, who are a mess themselves. And here's the thing. When it comes to other people's messes, we should be students, not critics. It's so easy when you look at other people's messes, when you look at the messes of the world, to be a critic. But here's the thing I've learned, and you know this to be true because you've been in a mess yourself. When you are a student, when you listen to the story behind the mess, well, that changes everything, right? When you're a student and when you're a listener instead of a critic, you learn the story behind the mess. And when you hear people's story, you go, oh my goodness, that's that's so sad. That's so unfortunate. I I, I hate that that happened to them. I mean, yeah, I I saw their mess from afar and and I I kind of was a critic of it. I kind of prejudged that. But then I heard the story and oh my goodness, it just, it changed everything. And do you know what happens when you are a student instead of a critic? What you end up having instead of judgment is this, compassion. You have compassion. When you are a listener and when you hear other people's stories and when you take into account that you are not exempt from this, you are one dumb decision away from being in a mess yourself. It allows you the ability to have compassion. And when it comes to other people's messes, you and I, we should have compassion, not criticism. I mean, whether you're religious or not, whether you're Christian or not, whether you were drugged here by somebody or not, we can all agree, no matter what you believe about God, we can all agree on this. The world needs more compassion, compassion and less criticism. Amen? We can all agree on that. We can all agree that today we need more compassion and less criticism. And the thing is, is that as Christians, and again, if you're not a Christian, I think you'll still agree with this. But Christians, we should have gotten this right. This is something important for us to get right. Because there's so many ways that the church, instead of being compassionate, we're critics. We're critics of other people. We're critics of the world. And it turns people off. But if we would have just gotten this one thing right, if we would have gotten this right, think of where the church would be. There's a story that I, I kind of have saved. It's in a podcast. Danny McBride. Some of you guys know who Danny McBride is. He's an actor. Um, he d- mainly writes like a lot of comedies and stuff and stars in a lot of comedies, um, like a lot of stuff like on HBO and stuff like that. Um, but Danny McBride, you know, he's a, he's a comedian and actor, producer and writer. And uh, he wrote this show for HBO called Righteous Gemstones. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen it. I don't, some of you may have, but it's, it's basically this story. It's, it's kind of a, a, a comedy on mega churches and mega churches 
church pastors. And so Danny McBride, John Goodman is his dad. And John Goodman basically plays Joel Olstein is who he plays. Okay, I'm just going to give it away. Um, and, but he's the pastor of this mega church and all his kids work for him. Like one of them is the youth pastor. And Danny McBride is like the associate pastor. And um, it's very sacrilegious. Don't worry, I've watched both seasons for you to, you know, par- pastor you a little bit better. Uh, very inappropriate. Don't go watch it. Uh, but it's very sacrilegious but also somewhat accurate as a PK. Anyway, that's not the point. But he, he wrote this very sacrilegious, you know, kind of critique on mega churches and churches and pastors and, and Christians and everything. And he sat down with Dax Shepard and did a podcast. And, you know, Dax is like, you know, this is very accurate. I've heard from several people who go to church. This is very much, there are some similarities here. And Danny McBride shared, he goes, oh, well, I know because I grew up in the church. I grew up in a very big church. And I, I grew up Christian. I grew up as a kid going to church every single day till about middle school. And, and, and Dax asked him, so what happened? And Danny said, well, our dad, my dad left my mom. And the church looked at her and she, she divorced my dad, obviously, because my dad ran out on us and dad left us. And the church criticized her for getting a divorce after my dad left. And I remember how much that hurt my mother. And I remember watching my mother feel so bad because the church kicked her out and they criticized her for getting divorced over a man who left his family. And I will never forget those feelings in those moments and how the church made my mom feel. And do you know what's amazing? Danny is still talking to Dax Shepard on this podcast. And he goes, you know what's the weird thing, Dax? I miss it. I miss going to church. Wow. Where would Danny McBride be? If the church had just gotten this right. If the church had chosen compassion and not criticism. Now, here's something that that, that we as followers of Jesus believe about messes. I'm going to give you two things, but this is the first one. The mess that brings us together is the mess that brought God near. For God so loved the messes of the world. For God so loved the messes of the world that he gave us his one and only son. God looked down at the world. He saw what the, the messiness of the world. He saw us in the future. And he saw all of this mess. And what did he choose to do? He chose to have compassion instead of criticism. He decided, you know what, this time I'm not going to wipe everybody out. I'm not going to bring my wrath. Instead, I'm going to send my son, Jesus. And this was, this was world-changing. This was life-changing. you got to understand. I mean, even the Israelites, the, the, the descendants of Abraham at that time, they were waiting on the second coming. They were waiting on, on, on this, this, this prophecy to be fulfilled. They were waiting on Jesus. But they thought when Jesus was going to come, criticism was going to come with it. That wrath was going to come with it. That there was going to be a king with a sword and who was going to be a warrior and who was going to bring on the criticism of God. But instead, what they got was Jesus. And they looked at Jesus and Jesus had compassion instead of criticism. And they went and looked at him and said, who is this hippie? This is not what we expected. This is not criticism. This is not wrath. This is not a a warrior. This is a hippie. And then Jesus, he introduces a new concept that had not been present before. You have to understand, Jesus changed so many things. But one of the most miraculous, wonderful things that Jesus brought when he came is this little word here. Grace. He came down 
into the messiness of the world. And he didn't even, he didn't just get involved with it. He made himself a part of it. He lowered himself into the mess. He put himself around the mess. And instead of being a critic, he had compassion. Instead of judgment, he introduced them to the concept of grace. And so here's the thing. You are a mess. And you know some other messes. And you yourself are one dumb decision away from being in a new mess. And so the thing is is that when we look around the world, when we look at what's going on in the world, when we choose to be a critic instead of showing compassion, you're going against everything that Jesus did when Jesus came down to earth. It's almost like when you're a critic instead of a person of compassion, instead of showing grace, it's like you're looking at God and you're saying, hey, God, I know better than you. God, I, I know what, what, how you would do this, and I know that you would choose grace over judgment, that you would choose compassion over criticism, but that's not what they need right now, Lord. I know better than you. That's not what my kid needs right now. I know better than you. That's not what my neighbor needs. That's not what my friend needs. I know better than you. Do you realize that's a, that's a really scary position to put yourself in? It's a very scary position to put yourself in, to look at God and go, I know how you would do it. But I know better than you. The second thing that Christians believe, and this is the primary thing we're going to talk about today, is this. This mess is a lens. Our mess that we're in the middle of, it is, it is a lens in which we can see something very clearly. For some of us, for some people, it's, it's the way that they've seen something for the very first time. And it's this. This is the full sentence. This mess is a lens in which we discover God. It is this mess that we're able to actually see and discover God. And we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to unpack that today. And to understand that a little bit better, we have to go to one of the most theologically deep and confusing letters that Paul ever wrote. If you don't know anything about the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul was basically bounty, bounty hunter of Christians turned leader of the first generation church. He was a huge church planner. He traveled all around the Mediterranean area and planted churches and established them. And then he started writing letters to each of them and started explaining this, this new law in this way. The way is what they called the first church. They called it the way and explaining what this whole Jesus religion meant, what it meant to follow Jesus and what it meant to love God and to love your neighbor. And so there's one letter in particular that he writes this very deep theological conversation to the Romans. He writes the the Jews and the Gentiles of Rome and begins to break this down for them and explain to them exactly what it means to follow Jesus. So when you look at Rome, he writes this very, very deep theological letter. And this is what it says. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now, again, this, when you jump into Romans, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Let me make this really, really easy, okay? All he's saying is that when you are a part of something that has a law, you are always underneath it, okay? When, when I went to college, when I went to Mid-American Nazarene University, it was a Christian school in Olathe, Kansas. And the first thing they did is they said, all right, this is the covenant. These are our rules of the school. If you're going to go to school here, these are the rules or the laws in which you were follow. And I had to sign my, my, my name at the bottom of it, right? 
I am a part of Mid-American Nazarene University. Therefore, I am under the laws or I am under the rules of Mid-American Nazarene University. That's all it's saying. When you get a job, okay, like it or not, when you get a job, there are certain things that you have to do, certain things that you have to be a part of, certain way of doing things. When you are a part of that job, wherever it may be, guess what? If there is a law that is present, you are underneath that law. Nobody is above the law. That's all he's saying. But here's the thing he's trying to get at. What he's trying to tell us is this, is that all of us fall short of the standards of the law we are under. See, when people read this in Rome, whether it be the Jews or the Gentiles or whatever it may be, when the Jews read this and Paul says, you are under the law, what the Jews would have thought back to were the 613 commands that were given to them. You know, the Ten Commandments, the 613 of them, all of them. They, they would have read that and Paul says, you know, there is a law and it is a law in which you are under. And the Jews would have gone, yeah, I remember those 613. Oh, man, and we couldn't get even like 10 of those right. I mean, oh, yeah, we were, we were under that law. The Gentiles who are reading this, the new followers of Jesus, the non-Jews, they would have gone to the, the, the law of Christ. You know, to love God and to love your neighbor. And they would have gone to that long. And they basically read it and go, that's right, Paul. We are, we are under the law. We are under the new command that Jesus gave us. But let's make it even broader than that, okay? Because some of you, you're not a Christian or you don't believe or whatever it may be. So let's, let's stretch our imagination here because it still all ends up at the same conclusion. Even if you're not under a biblical law, every single one of us is under the law of your conscience, Every single one of you, whether you're an atheist or a humanist or whatever it may be, all of us are under some sort of standard, some sort of law, even if it's the law of your conscience. Because all of you even have an di- inner dialogue with yourself and you have a conversation of whether you are healthy or you're not healthy. Whether you are responsible or not responsible. Whether you're fair or you're not fair, whether you're honest or you're dishonest, you have an internal, internal self-law or self-conscience that you refer to constantly that is a law that you're under. You have standards in yourself that you yourself are under. And the thing is, is we all fall short of that, that standard, whether it's a standard from Scripture, standard from the Bible, standard given by Jesus, standard given by God, standard given from another religion, or even a standard that you believe in yourself. Whatever it may be, there's never a point in time where you look at yourself and go, oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. Because the thing is, is that every single time, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're a believer or not or a follower or not, When you get caught not reaching that standard, what do we all say? We all say this, but nobody is perfect, but nobody is perfect. Hey, you didn't do this. Well, no, nobody's perfect, mom, right? How many of you said that to your parents? I can't believe that you did that. Well, nobody's perfect. I can't believe that you ate that. Well, come on now. Nobody's perfect. But here's the thing you have to understand. When you say that, You are saying something that you probably don't even realize you are saying. And it is a game changer. And it's this. When you acknowledge nobody is perfect, you are acknowledging that there is a perfect. Think about it for a minute. I know it's super heady. And I know it's super like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute, minute. If you are admitting that there is a perfect... 
uh, that nobody is perfect, then you are admitting that there is a perfect. See, the thing about our messes, the thing that, that we are creating is the mess gives us a lens. And what the mess helps us understand, the lens helps us see the unmess. The mess always has a reference point. And again, whether it's a law of scripture or a law of your conscience, the mess gives us a reference point of an unmess. And it's like every single one of us are aware that there is a unmess, that there is a perfect, that there is an ought to. You are acknowledging that there is an ought to inside of you that didn't originate with you, that is over you think about it for a minute i've had this conversation before with my friends who are humanist okay which is like a 21st century way of saying like you're a good atheist is what that is right and i've talked to them before and you know they like to blow up facts about the bible and all that stuff and stories and history stuff and i go yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's all good we can debate that later but let me ask you this what, what, what is that, where is that moral compass inside of you? I know that there are standards inside of you that, that help you point to what is right and wrong. Where do you think that comes from? And they tell me, well, we just, I just, I just know it. I believe that there's a conscious part, a conscious part of me that tells me between right and wrong. Yeah, but if, how, how do you know when you're not measuring up to that? I mean, if you're going to say that nobody's perfect, then they're pointing to a perfect If you're acknowledging that there is an ought to inside of you that didn't originate with you that you can't just throw away and throw out, then you're acknowledging that there's something or someone divine that is over you that you can't let go of. A gravitational pull towards a certain direction of how you should live your life. Where is that? And what is that? And Paul goes on in Romans and he says this. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, again, whether that be the the old law or the new law or the law of your conscience, whatever it may be. We all know that whatever that law says, it says it to those who are under the law. You can't get away from it. It's inescapable and it didn't originate with you. And for some reason, you can't just throw it out and say, forget about it. But instead, what do we do with that? Paul says, so that every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. We all have this ought to inside of you that that, that holds you accountable, that reminds you that you're not perfect, that reminds you that you have not reached the standards in which you should live your life by. Well, what do you do with that? Well, Paul says it's, it's there, it exists for two reasons. The first reason is that so that you would be silenced. So that when you see another mess, that you have compassion over criticism. Because when you acknowledge your own mess in your life, when you acknowledge that you are a mess yourself or that you are one mistake away from being in a mess, you are, you, when you see another mess, you are silenced because you go, oh, I have no room to talk. I have no room to talk. I have no room to judge. I have no room to be a critic because I myself have been in a mess or two. Paul says it's, it's there to silence us or how Jesus would explain it when Jesus talked about it's a mirror. It's a mirror so that what? So that you could see the plank in your own eye. Because don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you have a plank in yours. So Paul says it should, number one, silence us from being critics of other people. But then it also, it is also there 
for the whole world to be accountable to God. Paul says, you want to know what that, that inner voice is, that conscience, that self-discovery, that standard that ought to inside of you, that didn't originate with you, that you can't throw away? It is so there so that you would acknowledge that there is something over you. There is something you are accountable to. And Paul says, and that thing is a someone, and that someone is your Father in heaven. It is there for you. And then he says this, he goes, so therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscience, conscious, conscious of our sin. What do we do with it? What do we do with this inner turmoil that we, every single one of us have, where we look in the mirror and we go, oh my goodness, I am such a mess. Oh my goodness. I am not as healthy as I should be. Oh my goodness, I am not as honest as I should be. Oh my goodness, I do not communicate as well as I should. Oh my goodness, I am not as loving as I should be. I am not as quick to forgive. I am sometimes judgmental. When you look at yourself in the mirror and you see the mess staring back at you, what do you do with that? Do you know what we try to do? I'll tell you what we try to do. We just try harder, right? We go, oh my goodness, I'm a mess. Okay, what am I going to do? I'm just going to try harder. But Paul goes, that's not the point. He says, you know what? You could try and try and try, and you could try as hard as you want. But he says, no one, no one, no one. It's a spoiler alert. No one will measure up to that standard. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight at the end. He goes, you could try all you want, but you'll still never be perfect. Well, then what do I do? Then what is it there for? Is it, is it just there to make me feel bad about myself? I mean, some of you, you grew up in church and that was your experience. You're like, man, they just keep telling me that I'm never going to be perfect, that I'm never going to reach the standard, that I'm never going to get over this hill. And it's just like they're reminding me, hey, no matter how hard you try, you're still going to suck. Congratulations. Welcome to Christianity. We're glad you're here. Please pay your tithe on the way out, right? But he, Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the point. The point is that we would be conscious of our sin. That we would understand this, that we would understand, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then that would awaken something inside of us. It would help us understand this. It's the awareness of our messes that awakens us to something inside of us that we are accountable to. Paul says the whole point whether you know the scriptures or not, the whole point of your conscience, the whole point of that, that inner, that spirit, that spirit of God inside of you that is still holding you to that standard, the whole point of it is to let you know that you can't do this on your own. That you can't try yourself out of this. That as hard as you try, you will never be good enough. And that is why you need God. Paul says it's all there to draw you near to God and to remind you that God is drawing near to you. It is God dinging on your conscience and dinging on your heart saying, hey, I see that you still don't feel like you measure up. Hey, I see you feel like you're still not reaching the standard. Hey, I see that you feel like you're still not good enough, that you still don't have self-worth, that you still feel like you're not, not there. Just want to remind you, you can try as hard as you want to get to that point you want to be at, but you can't do it without me. 
And it is a reminder for us to stop leaning on our own strength and wisdom and to start leaning on God's. That God is drawing near to you because he knows you can't do it on your own. He designed you that way. He designed you to be incomplete without him. And so he's drawing near to you so that you would realize that you need to draw near to him. So that you can become who he created you to be. C.S. Lewis discovered this. C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of C.S. Lewis. He, uh, he's kind of a, a modern day theologian in the last hundred years. He, he wrote different books like Chronicles of Narnia and stuff like that. But he's also written a lot of very deeper, uh, much more heady books. And, and he kind of a modern day theologian, like I said. But a lot of things that people don't know is that C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He was in Great Britain, and he was discovering a lot during World War I and World War II. And he was an atheist. But he talked himself into being a Christian. He reasoned himself into following Jesus because he saw the same thing that Paul is talking about. He wrote this book that is very heady, very interesting, called Mere Christianity. This last year, I made my cohort read this book together. And I remember in college, my freshman year, uh, Intro to uh, Theology, this was the very first book that they made me read was Mere Christianity. Great book if you ever want to pick it up. Good, good read. But he talks about quarreling. Okay, that's not a word that we use very often, right? You never, never say to your kids, hey, stop quarreling with each other, okay? Sounds a little weird. But he says that he noticed something. He said, you know, when two people quarrel, both appeal to a standard that neither of them created. He just looked at people and he goes, you know, when two people are quarreling with each other, when they're fighting at each other, when they're at each other, what I see is two people both appealing to a standard that neither of them created. And what I mean by that is when somebody goes, hey, uh, you're not being fair. What does the other person always say? Yes, I am. I am being fair. You're not being fair. Yes, I am being fair. You're not trying your best. Yes, I am giving my best. Hey, you're not being honest. No, I am being honest with you. Hey, you're not being very gracious. Oh, no, I'm telling you, I'm being as gracious as I possibly can. C.S. Lewis noticed something. And this is a quote from him. So excuse my language. He goes, you never look at two people who are quarreling. And somebody gets called out on a standard and the other person says, to hell with your standard. He says, you never see that. Why doesn't somebody do that? Why doesn't one person go, you're not being fair. And the other person go, yeah, so what? You're not trying your best. No, I'm not. And I'm okay with it. Hey, you didn't do right by me. I know. And I don't care. He says, you never see that. What in the world is it? It really bothered C.S. Lewis. Why do you see two, two people appealing to the same standard? That neither of them created. That neither of them ever agreed on. He goes on in Mere Christianity and he says this. He says, the law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them. But the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. He says, we all have this human nature. We all have this this self-conscious idea of what we should do, what we ought to do. And it didn't even originate with you. And then he says this. Human beings all over the earth have the curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and they cannot get rid of it. This bothered him so much. Why do people not just get rid of it? Why do people just not ignore it? Why do we, why doesn't, don't people just do away with it? He says this next. He says, this is something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's behavior and yet Quite differently, real, a real law, 
which none of us made, but which we find pressing on us. He says there is something that is pressing on all of us. Whether we're religious or not, it is inescapable. It is a part of being a human being. There is an ought to inside of you that didn't originate with you that is pressing on you, dinging your conscience and telling you that there is a standard. And when we have that pressed against us, when we have somebody come at us, when we quarrel with somebody, instead of just doing away with it, we try to explain why we weren't able to reach that standard or explain to them that, no, you don't understand, I am reaching that standard. What C.S. Lewis discovered, what C.S. Lewis thought, and what Paul is trying to tell us is this. When you acknowledge the mess, you acknowledge the presence of God. If I were to debate with anybody who is an atheist or anybody who is a humanist or with anybody who didn't believe in the existence of God or that Jesus was real or any of that stuff, I wouldn't start with the Bible. I would start with this because this is human, because this is what we all know. And if you don't believe or you don't believe yet, I would love to hear an explanation because there is a standard There is an ought to inside of you that didn't originate with you. That for some reason you don't just throw away. Instead, you try to explain yourself through. Explain that to me. So, what is that? It's God. Paul would say, whether you believe it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, what is pressing into you is God. And he's pressing into you not to make you feel bad about yourself. He's pressing into you not to remind you, ah, look, you're still stupid. He's not pressing into you to make you feel bad. He's pressing into you to draw near to you, to remind you, to show you that when you look at the person in the mirror and you don't like who you see, that it is a reason to draw near to God. To acknowledge the need and the presence of God. It is there to call you, to give you a reason to worship him and to pray to him and to sacrifice your life for him. To lay down your life and go, look, I am a mess and I don't know what to do with this by myself. I've tried to try my way out of this and it didn't work. I've tried programs, I've tried books, I've tried podcasts, I've tried self-help, and it just isn't getting me there. I can do well for a minute, but I still end up being a mess. I still find myself in messes, and I don't think that I'm ever going to get away from this messy life that we live in. But I know that with you, you can make my life better and you can make me better at life. Do you understand? So let's land the plane, okay? Because this has been a real crazy hippie talk, right? I know. We're going to put some lava lamps up here next time, okay? So here's the thing. <laughs> I thought of jokes in my head and they're all inappropriate. I'm not going to say them. So anyway, here, let's land the plane. Here's the thing. We've all been a mess, are a mess, or are one stupid mistake away from creating a mess. So if there's nothing else that you take away from today, here's what I want you to take away. When you see another mess, you need to be reminded that you are a mess yourself. In the awareness of that mess and the mess in your own life, it should silence you. It should cause you to have compassion instead of being a critic. 
So whether you believe in God or not, or whether you, you believe what I'm talking about, at least you can agree with me on that. That it, we should not be critics any longer, but that we should choose to have compassion for one another. But for those of you who follow Jesus, and for those of you who are curious, for those of you who are kind of leaning in and say, well, I don't know, you're kind of onto something. I mean, it's very true. I do. I have this standard. I have this ought to that I can't get rid of. Here's the thing I want you to know. That is in you. That was designed in you. That was programmed in you. Not to make you feel bad. Not to make you feel small. And not to motivate you to just try harder and to get on Instagram and start posting your progress and get after it. That's not why it's there. It is there to remind you that God is near. And it is there to try to help you understand why you need to draw near to him. And I want you to know that when you look at yourself in the mirror, and we all go through these times, we all go through these seasons where we look ourselves in the mirror and we don't like the person that we see. We realize, we understand that we messed up, that we don't measure up, that we're not, we're not reaching the standard that's even in Scripture. But let's be honest, it's not even the standard in Scripture. We know when we look in the mirror, we're not even reaching the standard that we want. We're not being the parent that we want to be. We're not being the husband or the wife that we want to be. We're not being the person that we want to be. When you see yourself in the mirror and you acknowledge the mess that you are, it's a reminder to draw near to God. And here's the good news. Do not, do not forget this. Do not let this go. This is the biggest thing. If you could understand this, if you could wrap your mind around this, it will be a game changer for you. Is that when you see the mess in the mirror and you draw near to God, you will not find criticism you will find grace. That when you acknowledge the mess in the mirror and you come to God and go, God, I am not reaching the standard that I want for myself and I'm definitely not reaching the standard in which your law gives me. God does not look down on you in shame. God does not judge you. God does not criticize you. Instead, your Father in heaven chooses Grace. And I can't speak for every church and I can't speak for every Christian that you've ever run into, but here at Anchored Hope, we choose grace because we do not think we know better than our Father in heaven. So if that's what you've experienced, if you have a Danny McBride story, we just ought to start calling it that from now on, okay? Let's create, put that in the book. If you have a Danny McBride story, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you felt judged by that group. I'm sorry that you felt judged by that church. I'm sorry that you felt judged by those Christians. It's not what should have been. It's not what you should have experienced. But I want you to know, do not let that one experience overshadow the grace and the love and the compassion that God has for you. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you this morning. God, whether we're a Christian or not, whether we believe or not, whether we follow or not, Father, every single one of us, we've all had that ought to inside of us. We've had that voice inside of us that has told us the standard. We've been able to look in the mirror and see that we are not perfect. But God, that, that understanding that I am not perfect, that understanding that I'm a mess, it's a reference point to the unmessed. It's a reference point that there is something that is perfect. 
And God, it's you. We, we can't explain that away. We have to get, there has to be a name on that. There has to be a something, a someone. And God, I don't know about anybody else, but when I read your story, when I connect the dots, I understand that that is you. That it is you that is drawing near to me, not to judge me or criticize me, but to get me to draw near to you, to understand that the disconnection in my life is that I've been disconnected from my Father in heaven. That I've been disconnected from a family that you're willing to adopt me back into. Father God, would you help me to draw near to you? Would you help me to run to you like the prodigal son who ran home? Father God, would you help me to take this and practice this in my own life? And would the discovery of my mess help me? Would it silence me when I look at the other messes around me? Would I not be a critic, but would it silence me and reveal my own messes and make, it, make me determine to, to draw near to you and worry about my mess instead of the messes of other people around me? Father God, if you would do that, I think it would make us our life better and make us better at life. That it would look more and more like the image of the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven would draw near to us here on earth. Would you motivate me to do that? Would you help me to do that? Would you help me to commit to doing that and living that way this week? And would you change my heart? If there's any amount of judgment or criticism in me, would you remove it, God? And would you help me to be compassionate to others? In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we worship this morning?